Welcome to another episode of the Product Coalition podcast. This is the London series. I'm really excited to be joined today by James Charlesworth. Hi. And another James, my co-host, James Woodley. Hello. And we're looking forward to chatting about tech debt, which is going to be, yes. going to be good because we've got product, non-product, engineering, all, all in the room. So I'm looking forward to this session. So first of all, I need to give a shout out for the location host for all of the London series, which is Digital Directories. Digital Directories is a legal startup which provides a platform for people to make informed decisions about legal issues and contact legal experts. Originally founded in Paris in 2015, the French site has over 3,500 lawyers and due to its success, a sister site in Belgium was launched in 2018, followed by Italy and the UK in 2019. Now this tour and every episode on this tour is dedicated to raising awareness and funds for the bushfire affected communities of Australia and the wildlife as well. So if you do enjoy this show, please consider helping out those causes by visiting bushfire.productcoalition.com. I'm going to be visiting five cities, interviewing over 50 passionate product people like James uh, to gain insights, knowledge and experience to share with you, the global product coalition community. If you've just discovered Product Coalition, welcome. We're a global community of over half a million readers, 6,000 Slack members and thousands of podcast listeners. Now, before we get stuck in, I must give a huge thanks to the following brands and people that have made significant contributions to the fundraiser so far. Userpilot is a code-free user onboarding and adoption tool designed especially for product management teams. Userpilot helps to increase conversion, user retention rates, and reduce churn by guiding new users to their first aha moment with interactive walkthroughs, contextual product tours, and onboarding checklists. It allows product managers to build fully customizable, behavior-triggered in-app experiences with a simple visual editor. Head over to userpilot.com to book yourself a demo and grab a free trial. Shobit Chug is the intentional product manager. Shobit is a product manager at Google and helps product managers become product leaders and have careers that they can be proud of. Go to intentionalproductmanager.com and sign up for Shobit's free class on the habits that turn product managers into exceptional product leaders and help them move through their careers fast. Convincing users to adopt new features is hard. When you're only communicating with them via email and blog posts, it's even harder to get traction. Product-led teams like Mixpanel and Flexport know that the best time and place to capture engagement is when a user is already inside the product. That's why they use Chameleon to drive feature adoption, build onboarding flows, and gather user feedback. This is all possible without code, so engineers can focus on developing what customers really need next. Try Chameleon's product success platform at trychameleon.com success. There's two other individuals that I'd like to thank, which is Rich Miranov and Chris Miles for their personal donations. So James, welcome. Hi. Looking forward to chatting about tech debt. I'm hoping we're going to get a good audience on this one as well. It's the first time I've heard looking forward to and tech debt in the same sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Very true, very true. Now, before we get stuck in, in the Melbourne series, we had a locals guide. It's a bit of an icebreaker. In the Sydney series, it was a pub quiz. For London, I've... We found some products and the game is, was it invented in London or not? Interesting. All right. So do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. No, you you go first. Go on, you're the host. Yeah, okay. All right. So the dual flush toilet. (laughs) Dual flush. Dual flush. Not your standard. That's not the S-Bend. Poor man's one flush. Dual flush. The dual flush. I don't know, but I do have a question about the dual flush. Which of the buttons is the large flush? Is it the large button? Or is it the small button because that's the one you wouldn't push? Interesting. Yeah, right. Wow. I've always wondered this. I've always wondered if the large button is the one that you're more likely to push, therefore it's the small flush. 
That's a great way for saving water, though. Yeah, you, I, the reverse I psychology think it's the flash. Big, big button, big flash. Well, I thought so. I thought I so. But I would say the oil answer. Yeah. I don't know the answer to your question, though. I actually don't know. Uh, I'm going to say guess. no. It wasn't invented in London. Where do you think? Oh, Wales. Wales. Why Wales? A lot of water. A lot of water going along. A lot of flushing. <laughs> okay. Well, you'd be right to say not London. Right. So you do get a point for that. The dual flush toilet was invented in Australia. Oh, okay. And my friend, the internet, the evidence line on this is what would a dinky die, Aussie, and that was the best I'm going to give you as an Aussie accent, by the way, article B without the mention of a dunny. The water-saving dual flush toilet was invented by Karama in 1981. I'm probably going to get some feedback from some plumbers or something as to whether it's pronounced Karama or something else, but um, 1981, so quite a recent, recent invention. Right, James, over to you. Go on in. So to continue the toilet theme, the (laughs) the coin-operated loo. The coin-operated loo. London or not. That's a thing. Um, Yeah, London. I'm going to say London. That sounds like the kind of thing they do in public toilets. (laughs) Correct. Is it? Two for two. Nice. Uh, As quaint euphemisms go, spending a penny is about as far from reality as you can get, but it originates from this fragrant city. London can proudly claim to be responsible for the world's first public pay toilets. John Neville Maskelyne, a Victorian inventor and performing magician, created a coin-operating lock for lavatory doors. Of course, inflation has meant that it now costs at least 30 pennies to spend one penny, if indeed you can find a public convenience in London. Uh, they're vanishing faster than Maskelyne's, no doubt, lovely stage assistants. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if being a magician was part of the marketing of Maybe. Yeah. paying for going to the toilet. The, the magic of what spending a penny. was the angle there? Okay, uh, next up, James, um, if you had to pop down to Buckingham Palace for tea with the Queen, just out of interest, would you choose a cab, a tube, a ride chair, a bike, a scooter or walk? Probably a bike. Yeah. Uh, Boris bike, or as we call them now, Sadiq Cycles. I would jump right. on one of those and yeah. cycle down Whitehall. In any weather? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Why not? <laughs> Turn up to meet <laughs> yeah. Liz. It's fine. In any condition. All good, all good. And what is your favourite London landmark? Oh, that's an interesting one. I would say it's a bit obvious, but Tower Bridge. Tower Bridge has got one of those, it's got this really nice thing about it where it's an engineering structure. It's made out of steel, but it's got this beautiful cladding to make it look like it fits in with the natural scenery. And I think there's something cool about that. There's something cool about something being really functional underneath, mm. but looking nice on the outside. So yeah, I love that's, that. That's yeah, yeah. Cool. All right, let's get stuck into talking about tech debt. Yeah. Do you mind getting us going there by sharing your sort of career progression today and yeah. how we can then jump into how tech debt has been part of that career? <laughs> So, I mean, I'm an engineer by trade. I've been an engineer for about 15 years. I started off in traditional engineering, doing kind of like factories and oil rig systems and stuff like that, and then slowly made the transition into a kind of modern web-based tech company, and now work on a price comparison website just over the road, actually, in Hoban. And so, in, in terms of product, which I think your listeners mm. will be more interested in, I've worked with all kinds of different product managers and product teams and people that do the job of a product manager but aren't necessarily product managers so you know in the olden days it wasn't there was very rarely a product team so it's usually just somebody putting on that hat for a bit and then I've seen that kind of evolve into a specific person and then a specific team and then a whole mythology awesome so, yeah. awesome and you two Jameses yeah. have got some shared experience as well together yes so James was in one of my engineering teams right okay uh, in, a, in a previous life at a tech startup right yeah. okay doing a price comparison stuff for um, conveyancing. Cool. Yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah. yeah. Good, good go. co-worker over here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it. Like, no. Speak your mind, won't you? <laughs> it's a great guy. It's a great guy. Obviously, yeah. Well, he agreed to come back, so uh, <laughs> hopefully you've made a good impression. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice one. Okay. Um, 
Thank you for sharing that history. So today we're going to chat about tech debt, and it's it's obviously a meaningful topic to mm. any one that's any part of product really impacts everything from infrastructure systems all the way up to UX design and what the customers are seeing and how it's impacting them. So obviously any part of the product journey really. Why did you want to talk about tech debt today, Jen? Tech debt is one of those things that I think it's a lot of people don't hear about tech debt until it becomes a problem. Like, do you remember the first time you heard the term tech debt? And do you remember what, tell us like, do you remember what's, how long ago was it? Tech debt was probably 2000 and I'm trying to think of in my career where it probably resonates, probably 2011, 2011. 2012, yeah. Um, and in what context did you hear about technical debt? So complete rebuild. Yeah, Looking exactly. at complete rebuild and where the conversation was actually looking at have we got so much tech debt that we've got technical bankruptcy? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing, though, because tech debt as a concept, I think it's from about 1992. It was originally supposed to be a good thing. It was originally supposed to be a tool. Like, obviously, everyone knows tech debt as a thing that grinds organizations to a halt. Mm. But it was originally a way for you to be able to borrow a little bit of time. Well, you know, borrow a little bit of flexibility in return for having some debt that you pay off later on. The problem is people never paid it off. So that's when it becomes an issue. So if you're doing like, uh, we do a lot of experiment driven product design. So the idea, the playbook is supposed to go, you can't have an idea for a feature. And what you want to do is validate, it's the build, measure, learn thing, right? So you want to validate that feature as quickly as possible. So in return for that speed, you borrow some tech debt. That's, that's kind of the idea of it, is that, yeah, you get your feature out as quickly as possible by cutting corners don't test stuff properly. Maybe you don't support Internet Explorer. You, you know, you can't call it as, as much as possible in order to get your feature out in a week as opposed to four weeks so that you can start that process of measuring it, gathering data, working out whether it's actually worth going ahead with that feature. Now, that's actually a good thing. That works really well. That means you've, you've borrowed some technical debt. You've got your feature in some kind of testable form. Yeah, it's not going to be great, but it will work to the ability that you can measure from it. And then you can make the decision to go back and pay off all the tech debt and do your feature properly. Now, that's where a lot of it falls down because people, especially businesses and stakeholders, they'll think, well, you've done it. You've greased mm-hmm. that. We've got it behind a feature flag. Mm-hmm. We've put half the traffic to it mm-hmm. and we've measured it. And it's great. We just put 100 cents of the traffic to it and it's fine. And it never gets paid off. And a lot of it is when you don't just pay off the tech debt that you accumulated when you were writing it, you pay off, you have to unwrite it first. Mm. So if something would take four weeks to do properly and you bang it out in a week, then when you come to do it properly, it might take you five weeks because you first got to undo the way you did it before. I always think of it like if you painted a landscape and someone asked you to come along and change that house to a tree. You can do it properly. You can remove all the paint and create an extra space for it and paint a tree in there. Or you can just get your big dark green paint out and paint over the top of it. And that's fine for the time being. But if you don't keep that in check, then it will turn into a long-term problem. And it can uh, be... Go on. Yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, what were you saying? I was just going to say, the uh, taking the analogy, that's the interest in the debt. Mm. That extra week is the interest absolutely. you have to pay to get it done properly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it is, in many ways, it is like monetary debt. And so like monetary debt, that's a good thing sometimes. You know, if you've seen a car you really want, Um, and you're 500 pounds short for it, and you know that that car is the perfect car for you, there's nothing wrong with borrowing 500 pounds. Maybe you pay back 600 pounds later on, but there's nothing wrong with that. It's when you don't pay that back 600 pounds back. That's when you get into problems. Like you said before, technical bankruptcy. And it's an opportunity cost as well. You know, that feature might need to go out quickly to make a sale or to bring in the right user base at the right time. 
But once that is in, you can then solidify it by doing it properly and paying yeah. back that debt. You know, there's some opportunity cost involved in taking too long or not delivering at all. So sometimes it's the right thing to do, but you do have to come back and yeah. cover that debt. And sometimes that opportunity cost is just nothing more than the gut feel. Like the cost of Absolutely. delay is yeah. assumed to be greater than the cost to do it yeah. properly. So we can't. Mm. Well, how, how do you measure opportunity cost? And yeah. for me, if I think about monetary debt and the difference between that and my own experiences with tech debt is monetary debt is well documented. Right. So you borrow some money, it doesn't just get written down on a post-it note and put on the side of a desk. Oh, so-and-so mm. owes me £500 for his new car to continue yeah. that. It's loaded, logged, documented. Sometimes there's quite a lot of qualification has to go into making sure this debt is right for you yeah. and you are the right person yeah. for it. But with technical debt, it's a bit like an IOU that get, yeah. does get written down as a post-it note and it gets lost. And you know what? About why not? not why not treat it like that? Why not do it properly? Plan for it to happen. Document it. All that sort of stuff. It's very interesting to do an affordability study on your product yeah. to see if it can afford the debt you're about to take on. And team, I suppose, product and team. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, that is a, it. Is an interesting point. So technical debt can be seen as debt that the engineering team yeah. have, have borrowed, not debt that the product collective yeah, that has borrowed. That's one of my personal gripes with technical debt. Right. It is seen as a dev problem. It's seen as an engineering right. problem. And it isn't. And it certainly isn't when it brings an organization to a halt. But I think it's the process of accumulating it is usually only really felt and known by the engineering team. And a lot of people hide it. I mean, there's three types of technical debt, right? There's technical debt that you do deliberately, which is what we've just been talking about, where you've deliberately cut corners to get something out. And then there's technical debt that you do by accident because maybe the requirements have changed halfway through and you've built something that wasn't quite fit for purpose and so you've had to change track a little bit and you end up with something that isn't the perfect tool for the job. So that's kind of accidental technical debt. That's the kind of thing you need to keep on top of. And then there's technical debt you can't control, which is third parties changing their APIs, you know, like an, an operating system upgrade, a database upgrade, the security patch needs to happen, that sort of thing. Again, there's nothing you can do about that. That last one, it's felt almost exclusively by engineering teams, I think. Like if a security issue happens and we need to all drop hands and get something, or a live bug happens or something like that, it's nearly always the engineering team that fix it. And so it's nearly always the engineering team that feel the brunt of that. And I think the problem of it comes down when the engineering team don't properly communicate the impact that this stuff's happening. They don't properly communicate what they're doing. Mm. They just say, oh, we've had this issue. We need to spend a week fixing our database up. And they're not, that's it. They leave it at that. And the business owners have to make a decision of, well, okay, I guess we'll give you that week. But there's not, there's not mm. enough two-way communication going on, I don't think. So... And have you seen, sort of, if we think about it, debt normally has a, it's a number. Mm. So there's a, there's a description of the debt and then there's a number associated with debt. Yeah. Have you used sizing or anything yeah. historically to try and control it and maintain So this is it. I mean, it has to go into issue tracking systems. It has to end up on your backlog. The most success I've had with technical debt is when we've done that, where right. we've literally sized it. People have, I've read people that will have a wall of technical debt and they'll post post-it notes on the wall and they'll say, oh, this, you know, it's because it's visible to the whole company then. And then on each post-it note, you will do like t-shirt sizing like you do for any other ticket. Mm -hmm. And it goes onto your backlog like any other ticket and it becomes work in your workflow, just like a feature or something like that. So yeah, that's one of those things that can really help, as I said before, like the visibility between engineering and the rest of the business. Engineering teams need to be much more visible about what's going on, how much work is required to fix it. So that other people, and often it's product managers that have to make the call of whether 
it's worth fixing. Well, that that's the next part. I suppose the yeah. first two bits there of the puzzle were probably the easy part. You know, one part is documenting it, and that's either down to time or laziness as to why that may not be done. Yeah. So that's sort of quite easy to overcome. Drop it into a backlog, also quite easy yeah. to do. But then the difficult conversation starts, which is prioritization. Yeah. So what's your thoughts around that then when, when you're looking at how do you fit tech data into and alongside new value creation? I think it all comes down to communication. So when it comes to planning tickets for a product that a product designers come up with, it's usually quite clear in the product manager's head what is involved in that. Like maybe not all of the technical work, it's not clear, but it's usually clear of priorities, for example. It's usually clear of which of these two parts of the feature are priority. But when it comes to tech debt, you've only really got your engineers to go by. If they say this is more important than this, this should take priority over this. There's no two-way communication there. There's no product managers going, okay, well, I can make a judgment call because they're just doing what you say. They're just saying, oh, we'll set aside a day a week where you can do tech debt basically do what you want. And I think the solution is to fix that communication problem. I've always felt that in general, product managers are better communicators than engineers. I think it's part of your job, right? Mm. It's part of being a good product manager is being able to communicate a concept and be able to get information from other people. And you do that with customers, you do that with end users all the time, even directly or indirectly through data tools and stuff. And so technical debt should have that same approach. It should have that same approach of this is a communication thing where the onus is on both sides to get the other person to tell them exactly where this thing fits into the pipeline and exactly how much priority it is so that they can make a joint decision. And it's not just engineers going, that'll take three days, let's do it now. Do you think the amount of tech debt there is is a signal on how underperforming a team might be? Possibly, yeah. Because it sounds like what you're talking about there is actually an, you know not a highly performing team yeah. because there's no team there. You've got people in product and people in engineering rather than yeah. there be a delivery team. Mm. So is the amount of tech debt maybe a symptom of that? Maybe, but I think also you find that if you have multiple teams working on a similar sort of system, then tech debt can get passed around between different teams. So you might have one yeah. team that looks like a really high performing team because they haven't got any tech debt. What they're actually doing is they're passing it off to another team. They're um, selling their debt. They're selling their debt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's not always an indicator, I don't think, of a, a non-highly performing team, but it's always an indication that something's wrong. Mm. Yeah, this is, this is good about passing it off to teams and hmm. therefore we start to talk about ownership of the technology yeah. stack. For two engineers in the room then, is there anything changing with regards to tech, tech? If we think about how practices have changed over the last sort of four or five years, concepts around CI and CD, mm. Um, mm. concepts around DevOps and ownership, are you seeing that change? Anything do you think when it comes to the creation and management of tech debt? Yeah, I mean, I think creation people are becoming more aware of. Yeah. Management is always going to be difficult. But yeah, I, I have seen certainly since tech debt became more of a usual thing to talk about in Converse, you know, because it used to just be, I mean, I'm surprised that you said it was 2009 you first heard of it or something, was it? 2000 and it was either 11 or 12, yeah, yeah. wasn't it? Last commerce I think yeah. for product manager, that's, that's quite rare. Most product managers probably only been the last four or five years. This has been a thing that's been talked about. Mm. So that's good. That's something I have noticed. People are talking about it. Even if not everybody in your business fully understands what it is, they don't understand the ins and outs of it, people are talking about it. And that's the first step. So yeah, that's definitely changed. I think in the current, you know, it's fashionable to build things like microservices and mm. service-oriented architectures and like you say, CICD and everything, because things are being broken down a lot more. You can take ownership mm. in a stronger way. You know, you're not going to be writing in a line of code one day that someone you've never spoken to is going to be amending tomorrow. You do have that strong ownership these days. Everything's fashion. It'll probably go around in cycles and we'll be yeah. building monoliths again in three years' time. But <laughs> as it stands today, I think there is that stronger ownership. Yeah. Even even to the extent of supporting things, you know, 
you know there's a piece of tech debt in a system that actually causes a, a bug, it will be the people that wrote that that are most likely going to be fixing it. Whereas that probably wasn't the case even five years ago. Yeah, and obviously the, the infrastructure overheads are lesser with mm. the adoption of cloud services yeah, and platforms yeah. as a service, mm. that type of stuff doesn't fall so heavily anymore yeah. on the back-end engineers, et cetera, mm. or operations teams to support, maintain. Well, these days when you don't need to you know, have three ops people working nights to get your system released. Just a push to your master branch and the things out there these days, right? So. But on the other side of that, systems are so much more involved and complicated than they used mm. to be. And the opportunity for something somewhere to break that you aren't control of is kind of increased quite a lot yeah. if you think about it. It used to just be that you'd have a web server and you can largely keep that as a black box and control how much mm. tech debt, I suppose, is accumulated by it. But now it's all over the place. I mean, you know, one little part of your enormous system of integrated tools changes and you've suddenly got some uncontrolled tech debt on your hands and it's difficult. One of the other things I've noticed regarding tech debt over the years, some seasonality around addressing tech debt, particularly at Christmas time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so true. the old, oh, it's the second week of December. Yeah. Um, we're not going to do any releases. You're not going to be working on new value. No one's really around. That's a good couple of tech debt sprints true. you can get done, guys. Well, what's your thoughts on that dedicated tech debt sprint concept? I don't think that's the right way of doing it. No, me either. I think that's like rewriting a product. You know, it's like going, oh, well, we've got a three-week period here to tackle all of our tech debt. It's just like saying we've got a three-week period here to rewrite our entire product. It's not... You need to keep it as a maintained thing. This is why it needs to go on your backlog, like we said before. It needs to be small pieces of individually scoped pieces of work that go on to backlog. If you just do it in three weeks, first, you probably won't get anything done anyway. But even if you do, you'll just end up in the same thing again next year and possibly worse because you've never paid off all of your tech there in three weeks. There's two reasons I don't like it as well. Is that One is the mindset becomes, we'll deal with that later. Mm. And you know, you're in February and you can see the system's not performing very well because of a piece of tech there, but you're not allowed the scope to go and fix it. You have to wait until December. Who knows what that might cause in that 10-month period? And the other part of it is that from the outside, the visibility, oh, the tech debt is being reduced so much over the last three weeks because, you know, your velocity of tech debt just spikes. Everyone's like, oh, we've paid it all off. We're great. We're happy. The product is brilliant. And then that's not the reality. So that's why I don't like them. That could be quite a significant amount of change as well. Yeah. Over two to four weeks. Yeah. Particularly if people are on holiday, you know, know, we've got some reduced capacity especially over christmas if you've got the position you were talking about earlier where the engineers have kind of hidden the tech there they know what they're doing but they haven't Mm. advertised that Mm. to the rest of the business they might make an inadvertent change that someone who would have been around and Mm. could have stopped or at least had an input in are not there to help so that's the talking point the hidden tech yeah the hidden tech there i think it must come from a lack of trust so the way i see it okay a product manager is the voice of the customer okay and as a result of that almost, it's a kind of curse of that. Customers don't care if your database mm. isn't on the latest version. Customers don't care if your code isn't readable. And so kind of by extension of that, product managers can often come across as also not caring. So product managers, because they are the voice of the customer, they are the ones going, I actually don't really mind if you haven't got any unit tests or documentation. I just want to get this feature done because that's what I want to do. And so that can create a little bit of distrust because people think, what's the point? of telling the product team about this tech debt and the thing of it, if they're just gonna go, it's your problem, it's not mine. So it's, it's both, both ways. Obviously nobody's blameless in this situation, but it should be a shared problem. And it should be something that people speak up about when it's happening, because there's no shame in accruing a little bit of tech debt. As we said before, it can be on purpose. And it's just the transparency and communication is important. I think that's separate lenses, isn't it? You know, yeah. Someone looks at value through the lens of the customer, they want a new feature, whereas 
more so the engineering team probably looks at value as it's more stable, it's faster, it performs better, or it's security patched or whatever it would be. Like you say, the product managers are looking through the lens of the customer who don't care that it's on the latest service yeah. pack. They don't. So, Until it well, breaks, obviously. And then, <laughs> then everybody cares. Yeah. But that then, for me, that's about as product manager ownership and being proud of the quality of your product, mm. even though your customers can't see yeah. what's in it. And I think that transcends beyond software for, to be the Apple product manager, to care about what's gone into the hardware of an Apple device mm. and that it was created in ethical ways. And those types of concepts, yeah. not all consumers are going to care or buy a product because of that but it's all about the quality of the product and and how it got to to being produced i think also it's a question of who is your audience here so as a product manager you've probably got two audiences you've got your users and the rest of the business engineering team included so you could be knowing your customer of the engineering team who really want to fix this problem because it makes their lives easier you could prioritize that against the lens of or the the audience of the customer as well so what's the best way to raise tech debt if we think about raising it, creating a conversation around it, documenting it? When's the most effective way to ensure it is paid off rapidly? For my experience, we've tried loads of different things. We have regular meetings every two weeks that are dedicated to just talking about tech debt. Right. And it's the kind of meetings that we're trying to get more product people involved with, again, so that it doesn't just become a silo. So that, you know, talking about it is obviously the first thing, scoping out the work, identifying which parts are worth doing and which parts are because let's face it a lot of software developers can be a little bit finicky and they can be a little <laughs> bit you know they then it's never perfect they're often perfectionists if you say to them how long do you need to make the code as nice as you want it to be they'll turn around and say a year and a half and so it is working out exactly what really does need to be done and, and managing tech tech there's always going to be tech tech you can't get rid of it. Don't listen to anyone that says, I've got the perfect solution for getting rid of tech debt. It's not possible. You just need to make sure that it's not going up to the point where, as you said before, technical bankruptcy. Mm. That's what you need to avoid. So you need to get to a point where you can still innovate on features and you're not being ground down by it. So it's that pragmatic approach, isn't it? An old manager of mine said tech debt is made the second a line of code is written. <laughs> and yeah. it's, you know, if you take that attitude to it, you'd never make a difference because, True. you know, that. so you need to kind of find that middle ground between fixing everything and taking a year and a half and ignoring it completely. I've also seen tech debt be rushed. And by that, I mean, there's a thing that needs to be done and mm. therefore a quick little task ticket's raised, dropped into a sprint. Mm. Someone has a go at that task ticket, just cracks on with it. And then they go, oh... We also need to do this, this, and this. So my, my next question is, should technical debt go into discovery to be truly understood? It's interesting, yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't argue why not, because I do argue why not. <laughs> because uh, as you were saying earlier, it should be treated like any other item in the backlog. If the item it's going in to be prioritized against was, was through discovery, then so should that, maybe. Yeah. I mean, discovery is interesting. It's the product manager owning it as well. Like mm. like anything else in the backlog doesn't just mean it's on the backlog. <laughs> like anything else in the backlog means everybody involved in it can see the benefits of doing it. And it means everybody involved in it can see the problems in not doing it and make a judgment call based on that. But yeah, discovery, it depends whether it's... Just quite often the, the debt is the problem that's yet to be solved mm. as opposed mm. to the solution that's ready exactly. to be implemented. Yeah, And when it gets rushed, so it's just done, so that debt's paid off, Real feel good. Mm. You can create them more technical debt yeah. as well. Well, I was, I was going to say, taking it back to the financial analogy, it's paying yeah. your debt off with a credit card. Yeah, you know, it's absolutely consolidation of loans. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, you know, nothing in software development should be rushed. Let's be mm. honest, we've all done it. We've all rushed something out the door. But even the fixing of technical debt, fixing bugs, writing features, 
you know, it should be done the right way. So if there's an engineering engineer listening to this, they know about a ton of tech debt yeah. and maybe it's not on the backlog or it is and it just sits there like, almost like zombie debt, you mm. know, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just there and can't get traction. What steps do they need to take? How do you get healthier from this debt perspective? You need to be honest about it. You need to be honest with the product team and say, this is the effect the tech debt's having. So if you talk about metrics you can measure for tech debt, I've always thought a really good metric, your usual stuff, like your lead time and cycle time on tickets and stuff like that will be affected by tech debt. But there's lots of other things that can cause your cadence to drop. So you can't necessarily go, oh, the cadence is going down, therefore we've got lots of tech debt. But one thing you can look at that I found is a very valuable metric is how long does it take to get a release out? It's one of those things where that is almost directly related to the amount of tech debt you've got. So back to your question, if an engineer mm. has got a lot of tech debt mm. and they want to be able to get people to notice it, providing those metrics and saying, look, our release time has been getting longer and longer and longer. It's 2020, we're a modern tech firm. It takes us mm. an hour to get a release out because our pipeline's so slow. They're numbers and then you've got data. And then you can say, this is exactly proof of our tech debt. Nothing else is causing this. It's not negligence, it's just slowly rotting away of the ecosystem that needs to be addressed. And this is the ticket I've got that will solve it. Okay, so that conversation addresses the cure, mm. it creates a cure for it, that transparency metrics conversation. What would you suggest to someone as a prevention to tech debt? What type of conversation would you suggest they have? Again, I don't think tech debt always needs to be prevented. As I was saying before, sometimes it can be a good thing. Mm -hmm. But if you wanted to prevent tech debt, it's an ongoing process. So the, the conversations would be around every time you get some tech debt, reflecting back on it afterwards, almost doing like a retrospective, but a little mm -hmm. mini retrospective about the work, the way you would do with a normal product. If you've delivered a feature and it hasn't performed very well, you'd all get together and you'd look at it and say, what was wrong with it? If you've accumulate a lot of tech debt, you can all go get together and say, why did we accumulate that? Was it worth it? Did we get any benefit from cutting all those corners and making it fast? And if not, how can we learn from that? And what can we do going forwards? Is, it, is it also being open up front? Yeah. And saying, you know, we are delivering an MVP here. So therefore there is tech debt involved in that. Absolutely. And, and, then, and then knowing you've got to come back a week later yeah. to do your five weeks worth That's of work. something that needs to be communicated to stakeholders as well, because it's saying to somebody, yes, I can get you this experiment and I can start gathering data from it within a week, but you are going to have this tech debt. It's going to look like this. And in a year's time, this is what your system is going to look like unless we spend this amount of time. And, and we hear the tickets to clear it up afterwards. We've created all the tickets from it. They're there. It's going to have to happen. And it's making sure everyone's aware of that so that they know the risk they're taking. Mm. Um, like all debt, it's about exactly. the terms yeah. of the loan. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so if you go to the that. bank for a loan, you'll get a three-page sheet detailing everything, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. maybe we should start doing that for tech debts and experiments. Discipline uh, uh, around it. As, as engineers, we love writing documentation. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't you, Justin? <laughs> don't you, Justin? Brilliant. I've really loved talking through this with you, James. Thanks so much. I think it's a healthy podcast to have and it's a, it creates some healthy conversation hopefully for all listeners around this and there's certainly been some some provoking points you've raised there as well so mm. thank you james woodley thank you very much thank you james charlesworth thanks it's been great if you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes from the product coalition european tour please consider supporting the reason for this tour which is to raise awareness and funds for the bushfire affected communities and wildlife in australia if you'd like to support the causes which is the volunteer firefighters, the wildlife, or the National Bushfire Fund, you can do so at bushfire.productcoalition.com. Until the next episode, thanks for tuning in on the podcast or watching on YouTube, and I look forward to sharing another guest with you very soon. Bye.
Thanks, guys. Thanks. Cheers, as well.